Hello and welcome to the documentary on one. Last week we brought you Thomas and Tess, the first story in a series of War of Independence related docs that we're revisiting as we build towards the release of our new doc on the Bloody Sunday Centenary. And so to the second doc in this War of Independence mini-podcast series. Exactly 100 years ago, on November 1st, 1920, 24-year-old Eileen Quinn, pregnant and with three children, was shot dead outside her home in Galway. In this podcast, Eileen's grandniece Orla Higgins pieces together the events of that day and explores the impact this catastrophic event had on future generations of their family. This is Reprisals, the Eileen Quinn story. Where may new married women sit and suckle children now? Armed men may murder them in passing by, nor law nor parliament take heed. Then close your ears with dust and lie among the other cheated dead. In November 1920, Ireland was a dangerous place. It was the second year of the War of Independence and the nation was gripped by terror. And in the rolling countryside of South Galway, the shooting dead of a 24-year-old woman shook a family and a close-knit community to the core. That woman was Eileen Quinn. And she was my great-aunt. Connacht Tribune, November 6th, 1920. Eileen Quinn, a young married woman, was shot by uniformed men passing in a lorry at her home at Kiltartan, Gort. Mrs Quinn was sitting on a wall outside her door, holding her youngest child in her arms when she was shot through the hip. On my desk, I have a framed black-and-white photograph of Eileen. She looks like Scarlett O'Hara from Gone with the Wind. Her hair is tied back in a bow and she's looking up towards the sky. Growing up, I only ever heard snippets of stories about Eileen, but I always wanted to bring her memory to life. Eileen's grandson, Gerard Quinn, has been helping me find out more about my great-aunt, who was killed in mysterious circumstances almost 100 years ago. You know, she has this, like, quite... She had very curly hair, which is presumably why it's so tight here. But my first daughter has exact same hair, so I, really? yeah, I see her in her. Jared has spent a number of years researching what exactly happened on that fateful day. He is also my second cousin. My grandfather, Malachy Quinn, married Eileen Gilligan. So Eileen Quinn is my grandmother. She was born Eileen Gilligan in 1896 in a small townland in South Galway called Raheen. She was the second oldest in a family of 11 and went to the convent of Mercy School in Gort. Unusually enough for the time, she stayed at school until she was 16. Eileen was a fan of literature and loved the sonnets of Shakespeare. She also loved music, so it's no surprise that she met her husband Malachy at a dance at the crossroads near her home. Malachy married Eileen. Yes, very young. I imagine, because she was killed when she was about 24 and she already had three children, Alfred, who was my father, Tess and Eva. So there were the three children and, of course, there was one on the way as well. Eileen and Malachy's three children were under the age of four and in November 1920, she was seven months pregnant. They owned their own farm, about 70 acres, and they had a servant girl to help with the children and the housework. They also rented another 70 acres from Lady Gregory, 
the local Protestant landlord who lived in Cool Park Estate near their home. Beyond the farming world of South Galway, political changes were taking place that would end up having a devastating effect on Eileen and her family. Lolaren had been formed the year before in January 1919. The army of the newly declared Irish Republic, the IRA, set about gaining independence from Britain. They began their guerrilla attacks on the Royal Irish Constabulary Police Force and there were ambushes and killings on both sides. Brendan McGowan from the Galway City Museum. The RIC were primarily Irish Catholics. A lot of them would have gone into the service, not for any loyalty to the Crown, but certainly just as a job and a, and a secure and safe and career path. Um, up maybe until um, the War of Independence, they had a reasonably good interaction with the local community. Because of increased threat from nationalists in Ireland, the British government started advertising in Britain for men willing to face a rough and dangerous task. To support the RIC, the first option was to bring in the Black and Tans, who were made up of soldiers from the First World War. What they were were the RIC Special Reserve Force. Um, They didn't have enough RIC uniforms when they arrived in Ireland, so they had a mismatch uniform and they were soon nicknamed the Black and Tans. These were backed up by the auxiliaries, former British Army officers who wasted no time in making their presence felt. I suppose they were battle-hardened. They were sent here in their eyes to put down a terrorist organisation. They weren't, you know, Irishmen, so maybe they had less feeling towards the native population. I often wonder if some of them were, um, you know, suffering from post-traumatic stress after being in the trenches and and serving the First World War. So they came here, yes, and they had a reputation for brutality and they certainly carried out. But I suppose it shouldn't be forgotten, it was tit for tat, it was both sides. Um, Certainly the the IRA and our volunteers carried out attacks that were, were, you know, atrocious at the time. And it was a tit for tat. But certainly when you see some of the key incidents and some of the big incidents, they were certainly out of control. These tit-for-tat killings became known as reprisals, or revenge killings, where both sides responded to attacks with brutal retaliation. The policy of reprisals wasn't officially endorsed, but was tolerated, according to British MP for Oxford, Lord Hugh Cecil. It seems to be agreed that there is no such thing as reprisals, but they are having a good effect. November 1920 was one of the bloodiest months of the War of Independence. I think you need to go back a few days to really get the context for the killing because on Saturday, before the Monday, Monday was the day of the actual killing, November the 1st, 1920, there was an RIC man killed close by uh, as part of an IRA ambush. He was Timothy Horan. He was aged 40 with a very young family himself. And the practice, if not the policy, but certainly the practice of the auxiliaries was to conduct unpredictable, unpredicted reprisal raids after the killing of a policeman or a member of the Black and Tans or the auxiliaries. So it's speculation, but I think it's uh, fair to speculate that the reprisal that occurred on Monday, the 1st of November, killing my grandmother, uh, was a reprisal for the killing of the RIC man two days prior to that. To some extent, life went on as normal. Uh, Cows needed to be milked and hay and turf needed to be saved. In other ways, the sound of crossly tenders across the countryside would have terrified people. Um, People at risk of night raids. People were uh, fearful that if there was an attack on the RIC in their community, that there would be retaliation and people were fearful of that. Curfews were in place. According to a written account by Lady Gregory, 
Malachi had brought in the harvest, dug the potatoes, trashed the corn and was ready for the winter. That morning, he went to the local fair in Gort, leaving Eileen, the children and the young servant at home. My second cousin, Kathleen Ronan, recalls the story. It was a market day in Gort, uh, what was called a fair day, but there was always go along on a bicycle with the cattle. While Malachi was at the fair, trucks left Lenaboy Barracks in Galway City for the town of Gort. They contained members of the notorious D Company, auxiliaries who were ruthless in the tactics of terror they employed. He was late in coming home, so she went out to the front gate to see was there any sign of him because they had, usually in those days, though, through word of mouth, they would know if the black and tans had arrived into the town and seemingly they had and, and the men had to hide. When D Company were leaving Gort to return to Galway, they fired off rounds, first in the square and then on their way out of town. Rena McAllen, curator of the Kiltartan Gregory Museum, describes the route they took. That day they were on a rampage and highly fueled with drink or whatever because then they passed out Quinns and they shot at the fowl in the next door, which was O'Donoghue's. Further along the road, they broke windows in Callanan's house. So they were certainly on a rampage that day and certainly she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Saturday, November the 6th. Mother killed is the main heading. And then underneath that sequel to shots from passing lorry. The most graphic accounts of the day my great aunt died come from the Connacht Tribune. Judy Murphy is assistant editor with the paper. The paper would have been the main source of news, really, for local people. And there would have been national news on it as well. Being a journalist would have been very, very difficult because you were literally trying to report on what was happening, but not antagonise either side so much that they stopped you reporting on what was happening. And that was a constant threat. At around quarter to three in the afternoon, the trucks could be heard approaching Eileen's house. They were in Crossley tenders, which are open air trucks that would comfortably accommodate six people. She was sitting on a stile in her front wall adjacent to the main road. Um, And the house was only about 15 feet behind that wall. And she had one of her children on her laps. And one part of the testimony is to the effect that the truck slowed down as they approached um, the house and a shot or shots were fired. A servant girl assisted her to the porch. She bled profusely, was very weak and suffered great pain. Her condition was serious. The child escaped. A priest and medical aid were quickly summoned from Gort, two miles distant. One of the main characters to emerge from the stories in the Connacht Tribune was the local parish priest from Gort, Father John Considine. At about 3pm, Malachi Quinn called for me and said he had just heard that his wife had been shot. I procured a motor car and hurried to the scene. At the gateway, there was a large pool of blood on the roadside. About three yards away, there was another pool and the porch leading to the kitchen was actually covered with blood. The young girl, I think she was only about 18, 17 or 18, who was a house servant at the time, gathered up all of the children and brought them upstairs. Eileen was brought into the lower level of the house on a chaise longue. I think it still exists. Dr Sands from Gort and Dr Foley from Ardrahan were quickly on the scene. Surgeons Mahan and O'Malley from Galway were wired for, but so great was the sense of terror that they couldn't get a motor car to take them to the scene. Eileen's suffering was obvious from Dr Sands' statement in the Connacht Tribune. 
When I reached Mrs Quinn at about 3.30, she had the appearance of having lost a lot of blood and was in a state of collapse. I found a wound in the left groin caused by the bullet. The haemorrhage was then stopped. She had bled so much she could bleed no more. The wound was about the size of a finger and I saw no exit. The direction of the bullet was from a point in front of the left hip bone, downwards and slightly inwards. She was kept alive on strychnine and saline. The case was hopeless from the start. That paints a picture, doesn't it? It's very graphic. Mm. And even some of the descriptions, um, particularly, I suppose, Father Constein, he certainly is very eloquent and melodramatic, but it's also very poignant. In her room was the poor woman lying on her back with the blood oozing out through her clothes. Oh, Father John, she said, I've been shot. Shot by whom? I exclaimed. By police, she answered. She added that she saw them and that the shot came from the first lorry. At this point, she became weaker and I put no further questions to her. I tried to console her as best I could and administered the last sacraments. When I had finished, she whispered to me, bring me Malachi, bring him to me. I hear him crying. I did so. What a scene. Then she became weak. Malachi fainted. It was so upset that he got, he got a weakness and he was taken out to, and she looked for him. She knew she was dying and I mean, just imagine being your mother, leaving those small little children. And in the middle of all this chaos, some of the local women were concerned about Eileen's unborn child. And the fact that they tried to actually remove the unborn baby fetus, they tried to, uh, but there were always women who were called handy women, they assisted at childbirth, but they tried to remove the baby and they weren't able to do it, they weren't successful. So that must have caused her awful pain altogether. Bad enough, the wound, obviously bleeding to death, but trying to remove the baby must have been. So, So I do think the pain she went through must have been terrible for her. And in the eight hours it took my great-aunt Eileen to die, the cover-up had already begun. She was also attended to by the chief constable of the RIC in Gort, in the Bridewell Barracks, who refused to take a statement from her. The head constable arrived with a force of police and military. All seemed shocked at the tragedy. I asked him to go and see the woman. He wouldn't. He felt the trial would be too much for her. He answered, I cannot. Father Considine was also quoted in the Connacht Tribune as saying that Eileen had information that could have identified her shooter. She claimed to know the identity of the shooter, which I take to mean that if, if there was a line-up, she could identify the person who pulled the trigger. But the RIC chief constable adamantly refused to take a statement. He did take a statement from the girl who was the house servant in the house at the time, but not directly from Eileen. And she bled to death, but the death was very agonising. It took six or seven hours at least for it to happen. At 10.30, her condition became worse and we knelt beside her to recite the rosary and prayers for the dying. She tried to join in, but was too weak. At 10.45, the little children who were playing began to cry and with them, all those in the house burst into tears And when I read the last prayer of the ritual, she looked around and then closed her eyes and died. Eileen was waked at home and her funeral was held three days later. Connacht Tribune, November 13th, 1920. When the hearse arrived to take the remains to St. Coleman's Church, Gort, 
where Requiem Mass was celebrated, the deceased's three little children cried loudly and the witnesses of the painful scene were visibly affected. The remains rested in St. Coleman's Church on Thursday night and were removed on Friday after Requiem Mass to Kiltartan Cemetery. The funeral was by far the largest ever seen in the district. A profusion of beautiful wreaths surrounded the coffin. From the altar, Father Considine mentioned that Eileen had written to him the day before her death. This morning, I had a note from her asking me to say Mass for her deceased friends. Little did she dream that prayers for the repose of her soul would be asked for today from the altar. Pray the Lord to have mercy on her soul and may he give strength to her young husband to bear the awful affliction and may he guide and protect her little children for all time. Why after all these years, she's your grandmother, my great aunt, why do you think we're so fascinated by the story? Because there's never been historical closure. Because, and it's testament to how these things are intergenerational. They're not just at the point in time when they happen. And look at us here, 100 years on, we're talking about it. Um, That means um, the hurt has been transmitted, maybe diluted over time, but nevertheless still transmitted. But was anyone ever held responsible for my great-aunt's death? There was an official scramble to minimise the impact of what happened by authorities. Details of the military tribunal held on the day of Eileen's funeral were reported on extensively in the Connacht Tribune. Ten witness statements were made, including Father Considine, Eileen's doctors, the servant girl and a neighbour, as well as police witnesses themselves. The case was very sad and regrettable. He heard shots fired from the car he was driving. The local police did not make any serious investigations. He did not notice a woman on the wall between Gort and Ardrahan. The Crown representative objected to Mrs Quinn's dying statement. The press was cautioned not to give the witnesses names. Dublin Castle has issued an official report. And the verdict was delivered. The court, having considered the evidence, is of opinion that Mrs Eileen Quinn of Gort in the county of Galway met her death due to shock and haemorrhage by a bullet wound in the groin fired by some occupant of the police car proceeding along the Gort Ardrachan Road on November the 1st, 1920. They are of the opinion that the shot was one of the shots fired as a precautionary measure and in view of the facts record a verdict of death by misadventure. Eileen's grandson, Gerard Quinn, has spent the last few years trying to find out how Eileen was killed, who fired the fatal shots, and why, on a perfectly straight stretch of road, could the passing auxiliaries not clearly see a pregnant woman and her three children by the wall outside her house? I think I have the essentials of it, but there are lots of mysteries that I'd love to unpack further. At the subsequent military court or tribunal, one of the RIC men testified that he was the driver of one of the lorries, that the shot came from his lorry, but he didn't know who shot it. Now, I find that um, counterintuitive because if a loud bang goes off behind you, your first instinct is to turn around. So I think he was a little bit economical with the truth in that instance. Also, the military court of tribunal had the discretion to visit the site and satisfy themselves that, in fact, uh, as per the testimony, it was a dangerous bend 
they did not exercise that discretion. The three military officers were drawn from the local area. They would have known that road. They would have travelled to Galway fairly frequently, I imagine. This road we're driving on here between uh, Gort and Galway, so um, it's complete, completely straight. So I'm never quite sure why they wrote about it and said in the newspaper... You know, when they were driving along, they said they always fire warning shots if they're coming to a wooded area or if they're um, coming to a bend on the road. Um, I mean, there's nothing like that. There's no way you could actually miss anybody not sitting on the road, not sitting on the style, as, as it was called. How they could have missed Ireland, it's just, it's unbelievable, really. So it kind of, I suppose, begs the question, was it something a little more sinister than death by misadventure, as it was reported? Was it just accidental random shots? Or was it a deliberate reprisal? Another much more chilling account is that somebody got out of the first truck as it stopped, knelt down, took deliberate aim and shot her in the groin. That's murder. There's no doubt about that. If that's true, if that was premeditated. And somebody who's into the military explained to me that would make sense because the rifles they had at the time were very inaccurate. But if you really wanted to make sure that your target would be hit you would steady yourself, kneel down and take deliberate aim. There is also a hint in some of the contemporaneous accounts that the presiding officer in the tribunal, one of the military officers, was intimidated by the auxiliaries who apparently were outside the room and marching up and down. Under this cloud of intimidation, the witnesses for the Crown were never named in the newspapers. Neither was the driver of the truck or its occupants, one of whom had fired the fatal shots that killed Eileen. It's probably to do with protecting the people involved. Judy Murphy of the Connacht Tribune. I mean, it's like in any war situation, the military will protect themselves. And it would have been a very foolish paper and a very foolish editor who would have put his newspaper or his staff in jeopardy by naming them if they had been asked not to name them. Jared presumed that the military tribunal report would provide some answers and his search took him to the National Archives in London. There were 200 episodes of these military courts of inquiry right around the country and by regulation these reports have to be made public. We have not been able to find the report of that military court of inquiry. I found references to the case but not the Eileen Quinn report. But it would still be nice for closure to be able to find the original. After Eileen's death, her husband Malachi, now a young widower, was left to cope with his grief. He seemingly was very distraught altogether after the shooting of Eileen. Kathleen Ronan. And uh, Father Constantine came every day to help him to forgive and to bring him through this uh, situation, uh, the process of forgiveness. Malachi had to work the farm and look after his family. Eileen's sister Cecilia who was also called Sis, came to help out, as was the custom of the day. Cecilia was a secondary school in Gort at the time, and uh, she reminded them every day for quite some time, but she was very young. She was only about 14 or 15, and the eldest was only four, and uh, which was Eva, and Alfie was two and a half, and Tessie was only just a year. It wasn't just the Quinn family who were devastated at what happened to Eileen. Lady Gregory owned Cool Park, a short distance from Eileen's house. She was co-founder of the Abbey Theatre along with her friend, poet William Butler Yeats, who also had a property in the area. 
She was outraged by what was happening in her neighbourhood. Lady Gregory was uh, from the ascendancy Protestant landlord class. Rena McAllen of the Kiltartan Gregory Museum. But she was regarded as a nationalist, had nationalist sympathies and leanings. She felt very, very sad, you know, for Malachi Quinn. Lady Gregory wrote a number of anonymous pieces in the London journal The Nation as she felt that British people should be made aware of what was going on in Ireland. She actually wrote six articles for The Nation to let the English know what atrocities were happening in Ireland and what the work was going on with the Black and Tans. And one of the third publications that she wrote was about the murder of Eileen Quinn. She was also frustrated with Yeats at the time as she felt he was completely disengaged from Irish politics. She was a bit cross with Yeats because she felt Yeats had left this area. He left here in the autumn of 1919 and she felt that he wasn't here to witness firsthand this Anglo-Irish war and that she was here watching her tenants been shot at and her houses been burned. The shooting dead of my great-aunt made national headlines and was the focus of a heated debate in the House of Commons. Yeats wrote about Eileen's death in two of his poems, Reprisals, where he asked, Where may new married women sit and suckle children now? And 1919. Yeats wrote a poem called 1919. Uh, it was a, a political poem. It is quite a bitter poem. And it, it opens with, Nowadays are dragon-ridden. Dragon the nightmare rides upon sleep. A drunken soldiery can leave the mother murdered at her door to crawl in her own blood and go scot-free. Jared thinks there might be a clue about who shot his grandmother, Eileen Quinn, in one of those lines. I'm a lawyer, so poetry is a bit elusive to me. I prefer bullet points, <laughs> to be honest. But in as much as Yeats is hinting at some things, perhaps he was hinting at the identity of the shooter in suggesting that the shooter had gone scot-free. Um, the commander-in-chief of D Company was an infamous Scot. And also he mentioned drunken soldiery, and I think D Company was noted for let's say, over use of alcohol. <laughs> and indeed, the commander-in-chief was dismissed about a month later for drunkenness on the job. We may never know what Yeats really meant as much as we may never find out the identity of Eileen's shooter. Gerard didn't find the military tribunal report, but he did come across an interesting file in the National Archives in London. Soon after Eileen's death, Compensation of £300 was approved by the Treasury Department of the British government. As regards the individual case of Mrs Quinn, loss of a husband is loss of the family's main support, and loss of a wife, although it means loss of a housekeeper and the children's mother, is measured in money, an appreciably lesser loss. The file not only contains details of the payment to her husband Malachi, but it also includes correspondence between the civil servants on how best to deal with the issue. The circumstances of the death, however, seem from the file to be particularly deplorable and indefensible, and it is on these grounds that I should agree to £300. I agree, generally. I understand that £300 is the least we can expect to get off for. Presumably they wanted to avoid precedent-setting for other expressia payment, um, but he did receive that money relatively quickly, within a year, I would say. £300, which must have been a considerable amount back in those days. 
there was no admission of guilt. Um, the compensation was paid without prejudice. But one interesting feature that comes out from the internal dialogue is that there was a, a frank acknowledgement of the heinousness of the event. And while it may not be a public admission of guilt, in the absence of the military tribunal report, this indirect admission is the most acknowledgement of a wrong we can hope for. The Irish War of Independence ended with the truce in July 1921 and the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed five months later. Life still went on for Malachy. He stayed living in the same house and Eileen's sister, Sis, continued looking after the children. But the next generation of the family also felt the repercussions of what happened to Eileen. The eldest child, Eva, went on to join the nuns and train as a teacher. Eva was the one that was most affected because when she was four years of age, her mother was shot and she was the one that found her outside the house. My second cousin, Kathleen Ronan. So she entered a convent and she started to fast and she couldn't stop fasting and she became anorexic and the nuns were very good to her. They took her to top specialists in the UK and that, but they said she would die in her 30s if she didn't recover. And that's exactly what happened. She died in about, she would be about 35, I suppose. So that affected her all her life. Eileen and Malachy's youngest daughter, Tessie, was in Eileen's arms when she was shot. She was only in her 20s, about 25. She uh, died in childbirth and uh, because she retained the afterbirth and she had, she, the, her baby was born at home. Now, it has been said that because she had a problem with retention of fluids or edema, that uh, it could have been shrapnel from the gunshot wound to her mother on the hip that may have, she may have absorbed it somewhere or another that affected her, her, her body. Eileen's grandson, Gerard, tells us about his father, Alfie, Eileen and Malachy's middle child. That would have happened when he was about three. He was present, as were the other children, but it's inconceivable that they wouldn't have witnessed something. Um, and he was pretty traumatised by that experience. My father spoke very, very sparingly about it. I guess my mother spoke more about it because she was uni using it as a way to explain to us as teenagers where my father was coming from. He still had a sense of grievance over the loss, as we would expect. Um, and he was full of contradictions in the sense that he would rail against British imperialism, but if he met an Englishman, he'd be their best friends, <laughs> uh, which I think is a good testament to, you know, a sound intuition of forgiveness and reaching out all those years later, although the loss was very pronounced in his life. But one of my big regrets is he died when I was about 20, 21, so I never really had the time or the headspace to go into it in any depth with him. Happier times were in store for Malachy. In 1938, 18 years after Eileen's death, he married again, this time to Eileen's sister, Sis. My cousin Kathleen Ronan is also his daughter from that second marriage. She was so young, taking care of all those children. She was amazing. She sacrificed her life, really. Well, it was apparently conventional at the time that your next option would be to marry the sister of the deceased wife. I can't quite relate to that in 2019 terms, but in 1920, apparently, that was the practice. 
He always believed that everybody deserved a second chance and that uh, having children was uh, kept you young and was very good for you. So he maintained that we kept him young, second family. Maliki and Sis went on to have five children. The eldest was Carmel, then there's my sister Eileen and uh, my brother John, uh, who has now died, and uh, I'm number four, Kathleen, and then the, the youngest is Maliki. But one of the things they did, which was remarkable, they brought music and dancing into the house. I think it was in order to forget the past. And uh, we had a party every Saturday night where we had uh, people locally who were playing music, would come and play music, and we would have set dancing. And anybody who could do step dancing did the step dancing. We had such a happy home, really. We always felt so well cared for. But at the same time, I always knew that my father had gone through a great trauma. And uh, particularly, I think it was 1960 when we got our television first. And uh, the very popular Western movies were on. And uh, they would be on maybe for Sunday evening at about 7 p.m. Major, we haven't heard a single shot out of that. Do you suppose my kid could have gotten through? Well, that's no concern of ours. And my mother loved the Western because she loved horses and she loved countryside. It was always a romance in the Western, but my father went dark in his face when he saw the shooting. And if it was even 7 p.m. in the evening, he went off up to bed with a long, dark face. So he didn't like anything to do with shooting. Malachi never forgot his first wife, Eileen, but he still found it difficult to talk about her. My father thought very highly of her. Uh, he often said quietly in the house that the way she did everything was so perfect and that she was a great person. That woman that was here before is what he would say. He would never mention her name. Would the house have changed much now since Malachi and Eileen lived here? There's nothing changed. Nothing changed. That's Eileen Quinn. As coincidence would have it, she has the same name as my great-aunt. She married Don Quinn, Malachi's son from his second marriage. She still lives in the same house where Eileen was killed, just outside Gort a house filled with memories and the chaise long mentioned earlier by Gerard. Is that the, the bed then that Eileen was lying on? I believe so. And I got it up Isn't it beautiful? Piece of furniture. Isn't it beautiful? I, I think she did die there. Pictures of Eileen and Malachi's wedding day still hang on the wall. And the grandfather clock that Malachi used to wind every night continues to tick and chime. I got married in 69 and he died in 72, wasn't it? I was three years here with him, yeah. A very nice man, very quiet, reserved. And he never talked about what happened, it was never referred to? Never, never, not a word, no. What happened to him? I'd say he never got over it. I'd, I'd say he was, you know, stunned. Here at Eileen's home, her memory is still being kept alive a century later. I, I light a candle and I leave it outside for, you know, and I get a mess set, always. The 1st of November it happened. I always get a mess. That's the start of the, uh, the Holy Souls, that is. And before John Quinn died, he had time to complete the one thing he had always wanted to do erect a plaque to commemorate his father's first wife. He was talking about it for so long that he wanted to put it up in memory of her, 
He thought she should be remembered for what happened. In memory of Eileen Quinn, murdered by the Black Intense the 1st of November 1920. Well, that'll be there forever anyway. They won't come down out of that. And Kathleen has one last surprise for me. This is, uh, my mother gave it to me years ago because I was always interested in quotations. And uh, my aunt Eileen had what was called an album in those days and every single page is full of variety of quotations and most of them have to do with being remembered in love. When you shed a tear in silence for one you love so dear, think of him who loves you dearly and would wish that you were here. Now that exactly explains the separation between my aunt Eileen and my father, Malachi. Lovely lasting words. I'm so happy my mother gave it to me. Mm-hmm. I show the album oh. to Gerard. No, I've never seen this before. In fact, I've never seen any artefact from her directly before, so this is really touching, really nice. But it kind of brings home that this was a real person, a three-dimensional person, with her own feelings, who never got a chance. The rampant violence left its mark on South Galway in the winter of 1920. Eileen's death was not an isolated incident. As well as the killing of an RIC constable in an IRA ambush just before Eileen was killed, brothers Pat and Harry Lucknan were taken from their farm in Shenaglish by the auxiliaries and their mutilated bodies were found a week later in a muddy pond. These events are never really in isolation. It probably was a reprisal for the killing of Constable Horan two days beforehand. He left a wife and three very young children. And later on, maybe three weeks after the killing of Eileen, the Lochnan brothers were tortured and murdered. And I think there's an awful symmetry of suffering between all of those three. Everything in war gets reduced to black and white. And there's blame that's clearly ascribed and attributable to either one side or the other. And I think that one of the aspects of looking at it a hundred years later is that although it's very immediate and present, that gives you perspective, maybe a vantage point, not to hate, you know, not recrimination, but to reach out and say, we forgive, we have to move on. It's hard, but we have to forgive. I'm back at my desk. Eileen is still looking skyward in the photograph and I'm having a last look through the album. And there's one verse written by a teenage Eileen that sums up my journey to find out, at least a little bit, 100 years later, who my great-aunt really was. When the leaves of this album are yellow with age, and the words that I write are dimmed on the page. Then think of me kindly and never forget that wherever I am, I'll think on you yet. I'll see you in my dreams 
Reprisals, the Eileen Quinn story, was first published in August 2019. It was narrated by Orla Higgins and produced by Orla and Sarah Blake. And next week, we return with another War of Independence-related story, as we build towards the release of our new and upcoming documentary on the bloody Sunday centenary. Thanks for listening.